Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The word is out that in fact this relationship is not appropriate as far as the establishment concerned. Severely not appropriate in view of the proximity to the royal family. And that, you know, something should have to be done about it. The CIA, FBI, NSA have done nothing to assist my efforts. Instead, they have done everything possible to delay the case and obstruct the release of documents which would show the collaboration between the United States Intelligence Services and the British Secret Service. Welcome to Episode 10 of Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, with me, Homicide Detective Colin McLaren. I'm in Paris investigating the tragic death of the Princess of Wales when the Mercedes in which she was travelling fatally spun out of control at the Place de l'Alma Tunnel, killing her, her companion Dodi Fayed, and the driver, Henri Paul. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. She was taken to hospital in the early hours of the morning. Surgeons tried for two hours to save her life, but she died at four o'clock Paris time. Until now, I've been employing good old-fashioned detective work to try to piece together the circumstances of that crash. The how we've established. The why remains more mysterious. Though there are plenty of theories out there, it's time to examine some of the conspiracies. I think the public still has doubts about the death of Diana because it was so convenient for the royal family. I mean, at the end of the day, for the royal family, it was just so much better for Diana to be dead. I mean, that is the awful truth. Diana was a loose cannon for them. The minute this accident happened, you know, the, uh, the, the conspiracists were jumping out of the box, you know, because people couldn't believe that Diana could die in something as mundane as a road traffic accident. And I was one of them. I, 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 when I was told in the early hours of uh, that, the morning, I said to my boss, I, I can't believe this happened. I just can't believe it. I guess that's really why the public tends to at times think it's just all too convenient for the royal family that she died in the car crash. Chief among the conspiracy theorists was Dodi's own father, Muhammad Al-Fayed. His belief that Diana and his son had been murdered by the Secret Services on the orders of none other than Diana's former father-in-law, Prince Philip himself. The conspiracy theories that then came out very, very quickly, notably from the lips of Mohammed al-Fayed, that Prince Philip organised it because, you know, he, he didn't want a member of the royal family marrying into a Muslim family. As you know, it's difficult. Uh, the father who lost his son, who was Prince Diana, is not easy to know that your child being 
slaughtered by a bunch of gangsters whom they called themselves the British royal family. And the head of the British royal family himself, Prince Philip, he's a Nazi at the core and he's well-known racist. For Al-Fayed, the motive for murder was simple. The idea that the mother of the future king might marry a Muslim filled the House of Windsor with horror. And trying to prove that became an obsession for him. Here's eminent barrister Michael Mansfield QC, who represented Al-Fayed at the inquiry into Diana's death. The relationship was one which was not acceptable, whether it be the royal family or government at that time. The establishment were not prepared to accept that Diana might end up in a relationship with a family that was Egyptian, and particularly with a father-in-law who they found was distasteful. There was a rumour that she might be getting engaged, or worse, as far as they're concerned, and that is she may become pregnant by him. Therefore, the, my view was they had to end the relationship. They had to do it before the end of the break where they were together and before she returned to the United Kingdom. The only window I think they could find was Paris. And I think the idea was that she should be subjected to a crash which would cause her to be not killed but brought back separately and that that form of traffic accident would although not an accident, would bring an end to the relationship. At least that's the thinking. Obviously, Mohammed himself felt it went far beyond that, that the intention was for not just her, but his son as well, to be killed because of the hostility he was facing. However, the royal family was not the only powerful institution that Diana had made enemies with. She had devoted the final years of her life to the high-profile campaign to ban the sale and use of landmines. She also had upset the political establishment. Of, of this, there's no doubt, because she was compiling a list of British involvement in the laying of mines, the landmine campaign that she weighed, and it was an expose of if you like, the way in which certain British arms firms and British politicians were involved in this trade. She did get threatened. People were saying to her, you know, you don't know what you're dealing with. Stop putting your nose where it's not wanted. Since the arms trade is one of the main, was one of the main areas of interest for the British industry, it's right up the top of one of the leading exporters that we were at that time. Uh, I think there was a concern that she, as, as she was seen going to these places very courageously, walking through minefields and so on, never mind her working in other fields. So I think there lay another area of interest where security services might get motivated, not just by the fact that the royal family didn't like it, but British industry and certain elements of the political scene didn't like what she was up to either. Diana's friend Simon Simmons remembers trying to warn the princess that powerful interests in the international arms trade might seek to silence her. I had this horrible, horrible, sick feeling in my stomach from after she came back from Angola. I said, I got a really weird feeling. I said, something is going to happen that would be the death of you. 
I said, just be careful, please. I said, we don't know what we're dealing with. These things are bigger than all of us. I said, these organizations, if they don't like, they don't like opposition and they tend to get rid of opposition. The morning that Diana died, there was a meeting of Middle Eastern arms dealers, or the Arabs were meeting in the Ritz Hotel. You know, the British embassy's log of incoming and outgoing phone calls around the time of the crash, that was never looked at. I mean, that would have been very, very interesting to see who knew that she was in town and what they were saying. We're talking a multi-billion, or rather a multi-trillion dollar business. You try putting dents in any multi-trillion dollar businesses and you're going to have hell to pay. For those who believe Diana had been murdered, the circumstances around the crash held plenty of suspicious behaviour and unexplained events. It began with a death certificate. When Diana died, the doctor who looked at them, he didn't actually do the, the tests, a man called Dr. Bruno Rio, he ticked on the documentation for these deaths, suspicious death. Now, that was on the death certificate for both of them. And that was quite right and that was quite correct. But the British Embassy came in and with the connivance of the French authorities, Lycée Palace or the mayor's office, we don't know which, they rescinded suspicious deaths on the request of the British Embassy for the simple reason that you could not take the body out of France if it was subject to a suspicious death order. Then there was the so-called flash before the crash. A man named Francois Lebestri came forward and claimed he had been in the tunnel at the same time as the crash. And he said that he saw a sudden bright flash of light pointed at the Mercedes. Could this have been a deliberate attempt to blind the driver on report and cause him to lose control? We don't know about the bright light. You know, there may well have been a bright light. It could have been a light from an oncoming vehicle. The flashing white light, I can't answer that. I don't know whether there was a white light, flashing white light, whether the driver was blinded. The flash before the crash theory, well, that owes itself to a man called Francois Levy, otherwise known as Francois Levistre. He was a known fantasist, but no one took him seriously. But of course they had to investigate him because just because he's a fantasist, it doesn't mean he was not in the Alma Tunnel. But um, he, he made up this story about the flash before the crash. And uh, there's no evidence of any sort ever produced to confirm any of it. He was obviously ruled out. But the story itself did the rounds it went all around the world. There was also the time it took for the ambulance to take Diana to the hospital. Precious minutes that many believed could have proved the difference between her dying and being saved. When I spoke to Pierre, the French paparazzo, who was in the tunnel and who followed the ambulance containing Diana all the way to the hospital, he confirmed that it wasn't exactly racing through the streets, all sirens blazing. The ambulance was driving so slowly and I remember I was with another photographer following, Thierry Arban, and we said to one another, whoever is inside there is really in the critical state because the ambulance should be really speeding now. 
I could never ever accept. Why did it take one hour and 43 minutes to get Diana to hospital, even though it was medically evident she had internal injuries that required hospital treatment? One hour and 43 minutes, 103 minutes. That's almost as long as a football match, including half time. Now, the hospital was only four miles away. They drove past two other hospitals, including the Val de Grasse Hospital, which was the hospital specifically for VIPs. But yet she was taken to a hospital where the required cardiothoracic specialist was at home and he was asleep at that moment. The French took her very quickly to the hospital, but because it was a distance away from the Alma Tunnel, they had to go extremely slowly because Diana suffered her first heart attack while they were trying to get her out of the car. So therefore the medics insisted that first of all they saved her life and then secondly they took her extremely slowly back to the hospital, otherwise she might have been dead before she arrived. The actions of those at the hospital gave rise to another conspiracy theory. Why, after the death of Diana, was her body embalmed, effectively mummified? Because this is illegal in France. You can only embalm a body with the specific permission of the family of the deceased, or if they are not available, the local mayor. But on this occasion, a fairly middle-ranking diplomat from the British Embassy gave permission for the princess to be embalmed. The significance of this? To apparently disguise the fact that Diana was pregnant with Daddy's child. The effect of embalming meant that any further tests on her for whatever purpose, pregnancy included, but for other purposes, were rendered null and void. They meant nothing. Mohammed al-Fayed is in no doubt that the princess was pregnant because he'd had a conversation with her and Dodi on the telephone and they'd confirmed the fact to him. Finally, Michael Cole, who worked for Mohammed al-Fayed as Director of Public Relations for Harrod, points out another odd detail from the night of the crash. And on that last journey too, another big mystery. There were 12 places on the route where there were traffic cameras. On this early morning night in question, none of those 12 traffic cameras was working. Or if they were working, the film that they would have been taking has never been produced has never been brought into evidence, cannot be seen. So vital things which may have told us exactly the circumstances of that terrible collision which led to the deaths of three people and the serious injury of another cannot be adduced in evidence. And that, of course, is very, very regrettable. As a seasoned homicide detective, I've heard my fair share of conspiracy theories. And I've learned that much of the time they're a case of making 2 plus 2 equal 5. There is one story, however, that I can't explain. As part of my investigations, I interviewed American couple Jack and Robin Firestone, who witnessed the immediate aftermath of the crash. As we've already heard, they told me they had seen other vehicles parked up by the wrecked Mercedes. 
I noticed these dark formal cars and they weren't moving. They were parked. One was on an angle, one was more straight. And they definitely would have had to have preceded the car that was holding Henri Paul, Trevor Reese Jones, Princess Diana, and Mohammed Al-Fayed's son, uh, Dodi Al-Fayed. So they would have been entering in the same direction as that, but they would have preceded them in the tunnel. And I didn't see anybody in them. To my recollection, the windows were you know, dark windows, blacked out windows. So I just thought it was a bizarre sight to see. I'm not the only person who found this information interesting. There are other drivers out there who have not been traced. There are unknown drivers, never mind known drivers, unknown drivers that British police and the French police were not able to trace. There was black car in front. Witnesses said it. It's not contrived. This is what they said. They saw. But the Firestones also told me that when they approached the French police to give them a statement, they were told, in no uncertain terms, not to bother. We said to each other, we have to let the police know that we were witnesses to this crash, that we saw the immediate aftermath of this car accident. We saw a policeman presumably walking his beat, and we walked up to him, we said, excuse me, officer, we wanted to tell the police that last night, uh, earlier today, we were in this tunnel and we were witnesses to the car crash. And he says, oh, that is okay. We, we have enough witnesses. And we looked at each other. Robin says, how can you have enough witnesses? He says, madame, monsieur, we, we have enough witnesses. If you will excuse me, uh, I, I, I must go. Perplexed, Jack and Robin tried again to tell the authorities what they had seen, this time via the French media. I was facing this building several blocks away, and it had these red letters on top, AFP. Now, this was a Sunday, and everything around us was basically closed as far as businesses were concerned. There were lights on in this building, and I asked the waiter, what is that building I'm looking at? And he says, oh, that is the Agency France Press, the news agent. I said, maybe somebody in that building can help us get our story to the police. And a reporter came down the stairs, introduced himself, and he said, if you would follow me, and uh, we're gonna take statements from you and get this story to the police for you. So we were really relieved that we were about to do that. This was um, coming on to, midnight on that Sunday, maybe even 12.30 a.m. Monday, September 1st. The reporter gave him a phone number for the French detectives in charge of the Diana case. The following morning, Jack called. 10.30 a.m., I picked up the phone and dialed that number that was given to me by the reporter the night before. And I asked for the policemen that I was told to ask for, and they said that they're in in French. They said there is no one there by that name. There is no such officer. Further perplexed, they booked a flight home from Paris the very next day. Jack and Robin approached CNN with their story. This time, they got results. CNN told the police that they would go public with the story on how the French authorities were refusing to take the statement of the American witnesses unless they interviewed them immediately. Without CNN's strong-armed approach, 
for the French police, we would never have been able to give a deposition or a statement in regard to what happened on August 31st. Finally at the police station, they were now kept waiting for hours for an interpreter to show up. And at one point, the police captain came to us and he said, uh, he is sorry, but they're still waiting for the interpreter. He says, you're free to go if you like. And I said, free to go? We, we have a statement to give you about the car crash. Why would you let us go? Why would you even offer that and not want to hear what we have to say? He says, well, it's up to you. The interpreter finally arrived. We were ushered into a conference room and they put me up first and their attitude was, oh, look, Mr. Firestone, it's, uh, uh, it's getting late. Uh, your son is tired. You've been here for a long time. So we're just going to combine two depositions into one. However, when Robin told the police what she'd seen in the tunnel, their attitude changed dramatically. Robin said that she saw these two black cars. This is what really got the attention of the French detectives more than anything else. The two detectives looked at each other and they said, Mrs. Firestone, would you come with us please into the ante room? We would like to talk to you alone. Then I walked through a door with them and we went into a back. They shut the door and then we went into a small back office. The two detectives started to talk to each other in French. Then one of them was asking me more detailed questions. I thought it was odd that we waited for an interpreter when one of them clearly spoke English. They wanted to know more about the dark cars that I saw. They were showing me what was to me evidential pictures. They were asking me very specific questions about individual paparazzi that I had described. And then they had me look at pictures in, in hopes of being able to identify those specific paparazzi. Clearly that was very, very important to them. It was extremely fresh in my mind. I was able to give them information that they seemed to deem extremely important. We seem to have been the only witnesses that were able to place and describe certain paparazzi at that hour that ended up being in the Alma Tunnel. After Robin had given her statement in a separate room from Jack, he was handed what they described as a combined statement to sign, something completely irregular. The deposition was completed. It's about 9.15pm and it's presented to me, two pages in French. And the interpreter says, okay, uh, Mr. Firestone, if you would uh, sign over here at the bottom of this second page. I'm looking at two pages of single space paragraphs, 100% of which is in French. And I turned to the interpreter, I looked at the policeman, I said, I can't sign this. And he says, why not? I said, because I don't know what it says. I, I can't read French. He says, oh, the interpreter says, that is no problem. He says, I will read it to you and then you will know what it says and then you can sign it, yes? I said, no. I said, the only way I can sign this, I said, can I get a copy of this for my lawyer? They said, no, 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 unless you sign it now, we cannot use it. I said, well, the only way I can sign this is if above my signature I write, I don't read French, I don't write French, and I don't speak French. And they said, well, if you, if you write it that way, uh, I do not think that we can use it. I said, well, that's the only way that I can sign it. And I signed it that way. Maybe they just really hoped that we would just go away. 
by putting these roadblocks up, waiting for a couple hours for the interpreter to come, telling us that in fact we could leave if we wanted to leave, telling us that they didn't speak English well and giving us a deposition, giving me a deposition all in French to sign. The Firestones left Paris confused and traumatised, but at least satisfied that they had done their duty as good citizens and assuming the testimony they had given would be used to help solve the riddles behind Ina's death. I expected that the testimony that we gave, the statement, the deposition that we gave in the conference room at the Bugatti Criminal was going to mean something. So as we boarded the plane from Paris en route to New York on Tuesday, September 2nd, and got settled in our seats, we said, wow, that was something. Well, we did our civic duty, and I guess that's going to be the end of it. But it wasn't. It was just starting. We would hear just what became of Robin and Jack's eyewitness testimony in the next episode. Peculiar things weren't only happening in Paris, however. Across the channel in London, Darren Lyons, whose photo agency Big Pictures had handled many of the exclusive shots of the Princess and Diana for the final few weeks of their lives, remembers one terrifying incident a few nights after the crash. He had taken his team for a drink at the local pub. And we weren't there that long, but we went back to the office and I remember unlocking the door and the alarm wasn't set, which was number one and usual because I know we'd done it on the way up. Everything was on except for uh, uh, the lights were completely out in our building and you'd normally have a grid go down, you wouldn't have a whole property go down uh, in terms of power. So it was just very eerie, very strange. And I walked through the door with a couple of staff members kind of behind me and um, all of a sudden I heard, it was like a tick, 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 tick. And I saw a, a shadowy character, it was like a silhouette of someone I heard movement and then I heard this tick, tick, tick sound. And I just said, get out. I kind of felt that, is there a bomb in here? It was, um, yeah, it was fear. And then I dialed emergency services. And um, because it was just all very strange. And then I've never seen so many police arrive in my life. I mean, it was a huge amount of police. And it was a full Monty that arrived. They went in and checked the building out and, and everything was okay. Uh, the, the lights, I'm pretty sure, were still down. And no one could explain to me why the case was that. Um, and I, I, you know, we all gave the detailed descriptions of what we saw, what we thought, what we felt. Darren has never been given a satisfactory explanation of what happened. But given the amount of photos he had of the crash site, he has his own ideas. I do think that it was an attempt to get and download, whether they were successful or not. They could well have been successful in downloading of the pictures. We didn't know whether there was a bomb that was placed in the office for that very reason. We, you know, we we were all on tenderhooks at, at that particular time, and even times after. There's no doubt the paranoia was there. The paranoia was not just limited to those reporting on the immediate aftermath of Diana's death. In 2002, five years after her death, the princess's former bodyguard, Ken Wharf, wrote of his experiences in the book Diana, Closely Guarded Secret, and attracted some unwelcome attention as a result. I was followed on a number of occasions, I know that, whether that was MI5 or, or whether it was the police, I, was, I, I don't know. I'm, but I'm aware of surveillance tactics and you know, I witnessed it on a couple of occasions within the six months of me writing that book. 
Most of the circumstances surrounding Dinah's death, as well as the behaviour of many people afterwards, is peculiar at best and deeply suspicious at worst. But is there really any evidence for the idea that she was murdered? I have no idea but it was a result of a conspiracy. I'm merely saying that there were so many unexplainable issues and why things particularly around that, that night happened. For Ken Wharf and Daily Mail journalist Richard Kay, no matter how seductive the thought of a conspiracy to kill Diana might be, Muhammad Al-Fayed's theories simply don't hold up. Now, you know, what does Fayed want out of this? You know, he, he, he wanted or believed that Diana would become his, his, his daughter-in-law. But, you know, when you are desperate, desperate people do things. And I accept that he lost his son and I... That must have been very difficult for him. I, and I, I, I can sympathize with that. But I think one has to get back to reality pretty quick here. And all the conspiracy theories that came thereafter never stood up to test. It is ludicrous to suggest this was an assassination attempt authorized by the Duke of Edinburgh, that he would want to see his two favorite grandsons lose their mother. I mean, it's just beyond ridiculous. As for MI6 wanting to kill her, why would they want to kill her? There was no earthly reason why they wanted her dead. If you pursue that, the idea that the future king of England's mother can't be married to a Muslim, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Why on earth couldn't she be married to a Muslim if she wanted to? I think the conspiracies are non-existent. So, if the conspiracies are non-existent, would the results of the official government-sanctioned inquiries into her death have anything more definitive to say about the death of Princess Diana? Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana, case solved. The crash itself was the most investigated car crash in French history. The coroner told the jury of 11 ordinary London men and women that they were not able to even consider a verdict of murder. British police say they are looking at new information in the death of Princess Diana. They have not given details, but they just announced they are, quote, scoping new information that has recently been received, end quote. The British military may have been involved in the deaths of Diana and Dodie Al-Fayed after their car crashed in Paris 16 years ago. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved is hosted by me, Colin McLaren, executive produced by Dylan Howard and is production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. With additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz, Sam Adder and Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved wherever you get podcasts.